My name is Tamara Gober, and I'd like to personally welcome you to the Hope Community Podcast. Before we begin, if you live in the New York City area and are looking for a church home, I'd like to take this time to invite you to our services. For time and place, check out our website, hopecommunitynyc.com. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you are encouraged by this message, and we truly pray you walk away looking more like Jesus. The title of today's sermon is uh, A Glorious Union. We're going to be looking at Ephesians 5, 22 to 33 primarily today. Uh, before we get there, let's, uh, let's look quickly at verses 1 and 2 from Ephesians 5. Really quick. I think I have those on the screen there. Maybe. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, so it says this. This is how Paul starts the chapter. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So last time we studied um, what verse 1 looks like in our lives. Uh, we, we, we asked the question, what does imitating our Father actually mean, Paul? How do we do that? How are we holy as God is holy? And Paul told us that uh, those imitating their father will live like saints, they'll live like light, they'll live spirit-filled lives. That's what that looks like. And then in, beginning in verse 21, Paul shifts his focus to verse 2. Right, so now he's going to start applying what it means to walk in love as Christ has loved us. Paul is going to show us what this Christ-like love looks like in all of the most essential relationships in our lives. So over the course of the rest of chapter 5 and then chapter 6, Paul examines husbands and wives. He examines children and parents. He examines workers and bosses, you might say, servants and their masters. And so you can see him working out what Christ-like love looks like in all of our relationships, all the relationships we might have in our lives. And he begins with marriage in this passage. And here's the main idea, the main idea of uh, this passage Marriage was designed by God to paint a tangible picture of how Christ loves his church. Marriage was designed by God to paint a tangible picture of how Christ loves his church. So I think if I do my job today, hopefully you'll walk away believing that that's true. Uh, let's, let's pray before we, before we jump in. Father, we just... We just come to you this afternoon asking for help. Um, God, there are some passages of your word that, man, they just challenge us. They just push against what we want to hear, God. They, 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 they're hard to listen to and, and hard to apply, but God, I pray you'll give us grace in this endeavor. I pray that you'll help us to see the goodness, your goodness, through this passage, that we wouldn't walk away from here thinking that you are an unloving or unjust or angry God, but that you are a loving God, and that you have designed your world with a purpose in mind, and it's a good one. So God, would you please help us? Please help us today. We pray. Amen. Amen. So when I was growing up, uh, my dad used to build these model NASCARs. 
You know, you ever seen those things? We would, we would go to all these like hobby stores, like these obscure hobby stores where they sold model trains and planes and all those kinds of things. And he would buy, he would pick out the car he wanted, you know, and, and I just remember my dad was, you know, he was a busy guy. He had four kids and he worked a full-time job. And so he didn't have a lot of time to do this, but, but when he had time, he would, he would spend some of his time building these, these cars. And I can just remember him spending hours over the course of weeks, you know, uh, building one car, right? putting every piece in its place, and then he would paint it just so-so, and then he would put all these stickers on it at the end. And, and my dad is very good at this. Uh, he's he's kind of got a perfectionist strain in him. I, I, I got a little bit of that too. And, and so he would make sure it was absolutely perfect by the time he finished. No wrinkles in the stickers, no chips in the paint. He would spend, you know, hours just getting it just right. And when he would finish, it would look exactly like the one on the box, right? It would, it would be perfect in every way. And then he would get this little clear display case. You know, you've seen those where he could like put it up on the shelf and you could look at it and, and all those kinds of things. And I just, I just, that's one of my distinct memories from my childhood, watching my dad get out the little card table and he would be over there painting a tiny little sticker onto a NASCAR. And, um, you know, before, before we dive into this text today, I, I want us to just see something in, in verses 31 and 32, that this is, this is absolutely essential to understanding this text. So this is what Paul writes there. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's a quote from Genesis 2:24, the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And then in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. This, these are some of the most shocking and unexpected verses in the entire Bible. It, it is not an exaggeration to say that for somebody listening to this in the first century, that line comes out of left field. Unexpected. Wait, Paul, what, what are you saying? Now, now, it's important to understand that the word mystery in the New Testament, it always means something that was always there, but was hidden before and is now revealed. Right? Something that was hidden and is now revealed. Paul is saying then, don't miss this. Paul is saying then that the true meaning of marriage, human marriage between a man and a woman, the true meaning of human marriage from the beginning was that it would display a picture of Christ and his church. That is huge. In other words, the relationship between Jesus and his bride, the church, is the original. It's the original marriage. And human marriage is only a model of it. That, that is profound. Paul is right. That's a profound mystery that the relationship between Jesus and his bride is the original marriage. It came first. And human marriage was designed as to be a model of that first marriage. It entirely reshapes our view of what marriage is and how we actually do it. What does that mean for us? It changes everything. So just like the models my dad used to build, they looked like a smaller version of the original one. Right? Christian marriages, in the same way, are, are intended to portray a faithful representation of the way that Christ has loved his bride. Now, models are never exactly the same as the original in every way. Right? My dad's models were made of cheap plastic. 
they didn't have an engine in them, and they were about 160th the size of a NASCAR. <laughs> no one would mistake his model for the real thing, but when they saw it, they would look at it, and they would feel as if they had seen the real thing. They would know the picture that was being portrayed. They would know what it looked like. And the question we should ask is, do our marriages do that for others? Do they look at it and they go, so that's what the gospel is? And today we're going to explore how we even begin to know this or do this. Because there feels like there's so much here, but man, this... This text is something else, let me tell you. One commentator that I, I listened to said that this is the most glorious passage about marriage ever written. I have no doubt that that's true. However, he also said that it is the most countercultural passage about marriage that has ever been written. And I think we can all see why that's true in our culture. Right? Historically, there have been two kinds of views about marriage that different cultures have taken. Right, so you have patriarchal cultures, which have highlighted the difference between husbands and wives to such extremes that they've often been guilty of demeaning wives, devaluing them, disempowering them, and downright disrespecting them. I think we all know that that is true. They might view wives as property of the husband, permit their abandonment or even death for the most minor offenses, and demand that a wife stay home and cater to the husband's every whim. On the other hand, more egalitarian cultures have been guilty of so flattening the differences between husbands and wives that they see them as essentially interchangeable in the relationship. The beautiful differences that exist between a husband and a wife and the way that they uniquely complement one another in the marriage relationship are lost entirely. Now, it's clear Paul is holding two things in tension here. We don't have to choose between them. We can be equal and yet different. And only through the gospel is that distinction possible. Paul in Ephesians 5 corrects both views. He's, he goes against both extremes. He, he says no and yes, in some senses, to both of them. He says no to the patriarchal belief that men are somehow superior or more valuable. And he says no to the egalitarian notion that says that equal means identical. And he does that by unveiling the mystery behind God's intended design for marriage. That it is a model of the original. The original and greater marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. Marriage was designed by God to paint a picture a tangible picture of how Christ loves his church. And I want to demonstrate this by answering two questions from the text today. So here's the plan. This is what we're going to do. I, I wrestled with this all week. How are we going to tackle this text? So here's what we're going to do. We're going to examine this text from two different angles. First, I want to focus on what Paul tells us about the gospel. I think that's essential. We need to understand Christ and the church before we can understand marriage. If in marriage, husbands and wives relate to each other according to the way Christ and his church relate, we should first ask the question, how does Christ relate to his church? What does that relationship look like? And vice versa. That leads us to the first question for this text. What does marriage teach us about the gospel? So let's work that way first. 
So first, I want you to see that in the gospel, Christ is a sacrificial husband. In the gospel marriage, the original one, Christ is a sacrificial husband. Let's start in verse 23. Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, I want to focus on these two words, head and Savior. They jump out to us. What do these terms mean? The word head itself evokes the picture of a body with different parts, right? It's an analogy. It's an image. Now, in our context, we often use the word head to refer exclusively to authority, right? That's probably the first thing that pops into your mind. However, authority is only one element of what head, headship means, and I would argue that it's not even the primary meaning that Paul actually has in mind here. Even more than authority, we should think of the head as the source, the source of nourishment and provision for the body. Christ, as the head of his body, his bride, his church, is the one who ensures that she is nourished and cared for. That's what a head does. The word savior can be a bit jarring here, isn't it? Does that jump out at you? What do you mean, savior, Paul? Right, because is Paul suggesting that husbands are the saviors of their wives in some sense? Well, not in terms of eternal salvation. No, that's not the image that Paul wants to paint. That's not a possible meaning here. Rather, we should consider the word savior as it relates to the sacrificial offer that Christ made for the church in order to save her. Perhaps the word is intended to show us something of Christ's protectiveness for his bride. It's his desire for her flourishing, his willingness to suffer so that she might have life, so that she might thrive. And this meaning is confirmed in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Do you see those words? Paul is urging husbands to model, model Christ's love for the church toward their own wives. And Christ, what did Christ do? How did he love? He willingly endured suffering, shame, pain, and death for his bride. He bore the wrath of God for her sins. When she was unlovable, Christ loved her so much that he died for her. When she was unloving, he chased after her. When she was ugly, he shed his blood to make her beautiful. And when she gave herself to other men, he covenanted himself to never leave her or forsake her. He gave everything to have her as his own. He is a sacrificial husband. And secondly, the church is a splendid bride. The church is a splendid bride. For this, let's look at verses 22 through 24. Paul writes, Wives, your own husbands, as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should sub submit to everything to their husbands. Those words submit and in everything offer us some serious questions, don't they? Now, we're going to come back to that on our second run through. We'll, we'll hit those words, but what I want you to see here is that the church willingly 
and joyfully follows Christ's leading. It's what it means to be the church. Because he is there providing nourishment, protection, and a sacrificial bent to satisfy her. The church knows and feels her safety in being near and with Christ in a profound way. He has promised to never leave her, to never forsake her. He's promised to guide the way. He's promised to provide and protect along the path. There is nowhere safer for the church than arm in arm with her husband. And in fact, we see what Christ's aim was in offering himself to, for his bride in verses 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ gave himself for his church, so that he might make her holy. That's what sanctify means. And then it says that he did this so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's a fascinating line, isn't it? It's not just that Christ wanted to have a beautiful bride. It's that Christ had a bride and he wanted to make her beautiful. And in her being beautiful, both he and his bride are fully and ultimately satisfied in their marriage. He's satisfied in the God-reflecting beauty of her, and she is satisfied in her being beautiful in his, in his eyes. Christ did not have to choose between his satisfaction and the satisfaction of his people. It wasn't an either-or. They are one and the same goal. When they are satisfied in him, when we, the church, his bride, are satisfied in him as our husband and greatest treasure, he is satisfied in them as their savior. Now I want you to imagine with me for a moment that I know you've heard this story before. There's this girl and she is everything you could want in a wife. She's mature. She's smart, she's funny, she's ambitious, she's humble, she's beautiful, she's radiant, she's got the best personality, everyone loves her, she's likable, she's got all kinds of friends, right? She is the premier bride, the one that you would want to marry, the one anyone would want to marry. And then she meets a guy, and he is the one who you do not want to marry. And he's unloving, he's ungrateful, he's lazy, he's demeaning, he's immature. All he wants to do is sit around and play video games and drink beer all day, eat Cheetos. He has no ambition, he has no prospects, he has no desires to move up in the world. He will sleep with any woman who will sleep with him, whether or not he has a relationship or not. It doesn't matter to him. He's the worst of the worst possible man you could imagine. Now, if this girl, let's say, is your friend and she comes to you and she says, I'm in love. I'm going to marry him. What would you say to that? I, I see heads shaking, right? Like, yeah, I see that, that face in the back there. Yeah, that's right. Like, 
you're making a terrible mistake. You're going to live to regret that marriage, right? Like there's nothing good that's going to come out of this. He's only going to hurt you. And she says, oh, don't worry. He's going to change for me. <laughs> yeah, I, I heard that, right? We've all heard this story before. No, he's not going to change for you, right? And you cannot change him. He will always be that way, right? Of course, it's, 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 a, it's a travesty, right? Like, you don't even know this person. This is a hypothetical situation, and you're sitting there going, stop, <laughs> right? Like, you're making a mistake because that's a, that's a disaster waiting to happen, that, that relationship, isn't it? And when we think about the gospel as a marriage, that's the reality we face. In this story, you're not the perfect woman. You're the guy. You're the unlovable and unloving man. That's who we all are. That's who the church is. Christ is the perfect candidate to be someone's spouse. He is the one you want. He has it all together. He has every good quality that anyone could desire, and he has them all in infinite measure. He's the groom any bride would be thrilled to marry. And yet he's chosen to love us. But here's the difference between that hypothetical story and Christ. The difference is that she, she can't change that man into the husband he's supposed to be. The best thing she can do is never marry him, never call him again and block his number. But unlike her, Jesus can change his bride. He can make her the bride she's supposed to be. He can make her into the beautiful wife he deserves and desires. And he will. In fact, the only way that change can ever happen is if Jesus, the perfect husband, goes all the way to death and sheds his blood so that her spots, her dirt, her wrinkles, and her stains will be washed clean again. Oh man, don't ever stop pondering the wonder of the fact that Jesus has chosen to love us. It's a beautiful marriage, a beautiful picture of what love is. Now, from the second angle, I want us to turn our attention to Paul's application of these gospel truths. What does this mean for us? Right, so there's a temptation, I think, to stop here and go, oh, what a, what a beautiful picture Paul is painting here. This is great. Let's, let's all go home now. But the marriage of Christ and the church is actually not the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is how do we do marriage? And so that's what we need to do now. What does this mean for our marriages? Wives, how are you to love your husbands based on this passage? Husbands, how are you to love your Wives, those who are single and will one day be married, how should you think about what marriage is and what expectations you should have? Those who are called to lifelong singleness, how do you walk alongside your married friends and help them see, appreciate, and strive after the beauty of what marriage was designed by God to be? Right? This applies to all of us. And for that, let's answer this question. What does the gospel teach us about marriage? What does the gospel teach us about marriage? Now in verse 33, Paul summarizes the entirety of this teaching. 
What's the point, Paul? I boil it down to one sentence. This is what he says. However, let each one of you, that's husbands, love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. That's the summary statement. To sum up, husbands' love for their wife is themed on sacrifice, and wives' love for their husband is themed on respect. I want to start with husbands, because Paul says so much more to husbands than he does to wives. Did you catch that? There's like this much to wives, and then there's this whole paragraph to husbands. And so much discussion about this text centers on verses 22 to 24. We're going to get there, and what Paul says to wives. But the reality is, is that there's far more about what hus husbands are to do than there is about the wives. In other words, husbands don't get off the hook here. Right? We could sit here and we could debate verses 22, and 20, 22 to 24, but we would be doing a disservice if we ignored the fact that Paul has a whole lot to say to husbands, and it's not easy what he has to say. In Paul's mind, at least, husbands need far more direction and motivation to perform their role in the marriage well. And this makes sense. After all, our pattern is Christ himself. So I just want you to ponder that for a moment. The pattern that we are to uphold as husbands is Christ himself. Yikes. Okay? So, husbands are called to love their wives through sacrifice. This is where things get interesting. As if they haven't been interesting already. Because Paul talks about a husband's love for his wife in two different ways. Do you see it? First, it is a giving up of oneself. There it is in verse 25. Again, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands love their wives by laying down their lives for the well-being of their wife. She's considered as so valuable in his eyes that he is willing even to die for her protection, nourishment, and flourishing. This kind of husband does not demean his wife. He does not consider her as his property or his slave. He is not disrespectful toward his wife in any way, shape, or or form. He does not lord over her as if her existence is merely to serve him. In fact, while Paul tells wives that husbands are her head, he nowhere mentions, did you catch that? He nowhere mentions a husband's headship in the marriage to the husband. Oh, what damage has been done by husbands who feel it is somehow their right to demand a wife's obedience. No, husbands do not demand obedience from their wives. They lead lovingly. They practice servant leadership. They lay down their lives. They don't take their wife's respect as a given. They live worthy of it by demonstrating their love for her in radically sacrificial ways. And if a husband's headship means anything to him, it means that he has the greater responsibility and accountability for the marriage relationship. When Eve sinned in the garden, God confronted Adam. Won't he do the same for us, husbands? We cannot always control what our wives do, but we can be certain that we will be held accountable for it. Second, we see Paul commanding husbands to love their wives in this way because your wife is your own flesh. Look at verses 28 to 30. 
In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves him, his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. This is the profound reality of Genesis 2.24. That first marriage. In marriage, through the sexual union of the man and the woman, two people become one flesh, one body. To neglect your spouse is to neglect yourself. And to care for your spouse is to care for yourself. And it's not selfish to do it for this reason. We all want joy and satisfaction from our marriage. We all want that. The giving up of oneself for our wives is not contrary to finding satisfaction for yourself in marriage. This is the most profound truth about marriage in this whole text. Husbands, by sacrificially pursuing the joy and satisfaction of your wife, you will find the joy and satisfaction you are longing for in your marriage as well. This is how God has designed it. The two are one and the same goal. To find one is to find the other. And this is exactly how God intended it to be because the same is true of Christ and the church. And now we can turn to the most challenging part of this text, Paul's direction to wives. So according to what we read in verse 33, wives are called to love their husbands through respect. Through respect. Now, now we can look at verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. That word, submit, ooh man, can seem grating and unwelcome to us. Not the word we want to see. Because it is, right? It is grating to us. And it's not even just about the issue of gender or marriage. We don't like to submit in any context. Our belief is that I should never have to submit to anyone ever. But in fact, the entire Christian life as a whole is built on submission. As a follower of Jesus, we take up our cross and follow him in radical submission to his leading in our lives. It's what it means at the very root to be a Christian. And earlier I had Savannah read verses 18 to 21. And I want you to see these. Because Paul is saying, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This is what we talked about last week. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And catch that last line there. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. There, in verse 21, Paul tells us that every Christian is called to submit to other believers in the church. As Paul goes on, he'll call children to submit to their parents, workers to their bosses. Church congregations are called to submit to the leading of the elders. Submission is built into what it means to be a Christian. However, the command in verse 21 is not merely a blanket command that is just to be applied however we see fit. Rather, how we submit depends on the relationship and our, and our role in it. 
And that's what Paul is laying out here in Ephesians 5 and 6. In this section, Paul is telling us how a Christian wife submits to her husband and how a Christian husband submits to his wife in accord with verse 21. So what does the word submit then mean? Well, it means different things in different contexts biblically, and it's important to highlight these differences. When the Bible speaks of human submission to God, it means unconditional and immediate obedience to every command. But I want you to see one little word in verses 22 and 24. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then in verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, also wives should submit to their husbands. It's the word as. Do you see that? The word as actually carries a lot of weight in this passage. It's, it's really important that we understand it. As to the Lord means that Paul is creating an analogy between the two relationships. Her submission to the Lord should inform her submission to her husband, but it should never be one-to-one. In other words, Paul is not suggesting that a woman's husband is now Jesus to her, where she must do everything he says every time and without question. That is not the point that Paul is making. This would be especially problematic if her husband is not a believer. Jesus is perfect. He's infinitely wise and all-knowing. A woman's husband is none of those things. And in verse 24, the in everything does not then mean that a wife is called to do everything her husband desires. But rather, she is called to respect her husband in every area of their life and marriage, just as the church also does Christ. Submission in this context is less about obedience and more about disposition. What Paul is describing here is a disposition of deference, of respect, and honor of a wife toward a husband. While she desires to honor her, all her husband's wishes where she can, she understands that there are moments when submission to Christ requires her to defy her husband's desires. But she always does that in a way that honors her husband rather than disrespects him. When she must confront her husband's sin and failure to love her like Christ, and she should do that, she makes clear that she's doing so for his good. And I want you to see that the picture of a wife that Paul is painting here is not describing a doormat for a husband to walk all over. Paul's very words... The fact that he is addressing wives at all in this text acknowledges the wife's independence from her husband. He acknowledges that she has desires and challenges that she faces. Paul is acknowledging her personhood in profoundly respectful ways and even writing in this manner. And he's acknowledging the beauty, strength, and value of wives as persons made in the image of God. Husbands, if we read Paul correctly, we will walk away from this text with a higher view, a higher respect for our wife than when we came to it. Not a lower one. She is worthy of honor and sacrifice, and we ought to live worthy of her respect as a result. And there are a few things that this command from Paul does not mean. 
And I think this is very important to say because so, there's so much in this text that has been twisted and abused and used to, to demean women throughout history. And that's one of the challenges of preaching a text like this because I want to honor what Paul said, but I also want to undo what so many people have done in misusing it. And so it's important to say this. First, the fact that Paul uses the word own, you see that? Wives submit to your own husbands in verse 22, tells us that this is not about how women and men relate to one another in general. This is not about how women and men relate to one another in general. This is only about a wife and her husband. One woman and one man. Women, you are not biblically required to submit in this way to all men. If you're unmarried, you're not biblically required to submit in this manner, specifically, to any man, as if he were your husband. It is one man and one woman relationship. Only a wife and her one husband relate to each other in this way. Second, this does not mean that there is only one way for a home to operate. This is another abuse that people have made. Paul doesn't tell us whether wives can work outside the home or not in this text. Paul doesn't tell us that husbands must make every decision in the home. Paul doesn't tell us that wives have no say in what happens in their home. He didn't say any of that. If somebody tells you that that's what this means, they are imposing that on Paul. And they're putting words in his mouth that he did not say. Wives can honor these commands whether they work at home or not. Paul certainly doesn't tell us that men ought to be the only decision makers in a home. Families have always operated differently, right? This is going to this is going to work itself out in, in unique ways in your family according to your needs and personalities and the way your home operates. But the blanket command remains the same. So both of these errors are a misreading of the text that go against the very heart of what Paul is trying to say. Paul is speaking against so many of the same wrongs that people have used Paul's words Further, if that makes sense. So let's return for a moment to the model cars that my dad used, used to make. Um, when my dad would get a new one of these, right, so it always comes with like, you have the, it's like a puzzle pretty much. You have the picture on the box that is actually of the real car itself. I never understood that. It's not a picture of the model car. It's actually a picture of the real car. Um, and then you get instructions with all of these little pieces inside that tell you how to put it together and what to glue where and what parts you need and all of that. Now you had to know not only how to build it, but what it should look like when it was finished, right? You had to have both. You need the instructions and the finished product in front of you if you're going to build it correctly. Each piece has its place. And over time, as my dad built more and more of these, you get a feel, right? It comes, becomes kind of intuitive. You understand where the pieces are supposed to go. But I just want you to imagine with me for a second that my dad goes to the store, or you go to the store for the first time. You're like, oh, I'm inspired by this sermon. I want to build some model cars now. Um, that's what you're going to take away from this, I know. And uh, so you go to the store, and you say, I'm going to build one of these cars. And you buy it. 
and you dump all the pieces out on your table and you proceed to throw the box away and the instructions with it. You say, let's do this thing, right? I'm going to build it. I mean, what, what would happen? You might get close. I mean, look, some of the pieces are pretty self-identifiable. Like, self you can kind of figure out, oh, this is the bumper. Oh, this is the top part. So you might get close, but I guarantee you when you get done with that, your finished product is either going to look wrong or it's going to fall apart <laughs> because you didn't glue all the things together correctly. And this is exactly how we approach marriage sometimes, isn't it? I'll speak for myself. I approach marriage as a build it as you go, right? We'll figure, we'll figure it out. What could be complicated about it, right? <laughs> it's a man and a woman. We're going to figure things out. And I throw away the instructions. I throw away the picture on the box. And I'm like, let's do this thing. Now, you might figure things out. And what you build, maybe it'll look something like a car. <laughs> but... Maybe it won't. Maybe it'll be a little lopsided. And maybe eventually it'll fall apart. You see, what we need in our marriages, we need the picture and the instructions. And that's what Paul's trying to give us here. Paul is saying, your marriage is supposed to look like Christ and the church. That's the finished product. That's the original that we're modeling after. And these instructions are how we do it. How we make that happen. The best models are built according to the design. The best models are built according to the design. And however much somebody might have taken this text and abused it, however much this might grate against our intuitions in our culture and in our day, I believe that Paul's vision for marriage is still good and still worthy of pursuing if we're willing to put the work in. I mean, I hope that you're not sitting there thinking, oh, this is easy. No, there's a million little parts and we gotta figure out how to put those together. But Paul wants to give us help. He wants to instruct us. So here's what I wanna do as we close today. I wanna conclude with two words of application and we're gonna then spend some time reflecting on what we've heard. The first question is, will you admire the original design? Look, it doesn't matter if you're married or not. Who you are in this room, it, it, this applies to all of us. Because I'm aware that this room is full of people who are in different stages of their life. We have people who have been married for a while. We have people who are newly married. We have people who are about to be married. We have people who have been hurt by marriage. And we have people who've never been married. But this, this sermon is not just for husbands and wives, it's for the church. The thing that will heal what's broken in your life or in your marriage is not the perfect human spouse. The thing that will bring you joy and satisfaction is not a future relationship that you're imagining in your mind. The thing that you most need is not the model. It's the original. Christ has loved his church, his bride, in a profound and beautiful way. Will you admire that? Will you ponder the wonder of that?
Will you find your joy and satisfaction in his perfect love? Don't daydream about the perfect spouse or the perfect marriage. Those don't exist in this world. Let me just tell you right now. Instead, meditate on the perfect Savior who has given everything to have you and to make you his beautiful, spotless bride. And secondly, for those of us who are married or will be, will you strive to model this? Will you leave behind your false notions and misconceptions about what marriage is supposed to be? Will you be brave? This takes courage. Will you be brave and bold in striving to be the spouse you're called to be? Husbands, will you sacrificially lay down your life for your wife? Wives, will you respect your husband? And when you fail, and you will fail often, to do this. And when you fail, will you humbly seek forgiveness? The forgiveness of your spouse and the forgiveness of your Savior. When you, will you admit when you're wrong and rely on God's grace to do what he's commanded? We need his grace. And he has abundantly provided it for us by offering his son in our place. Thank you for listening. For more information about our church, please visit our website at hopecommunitynyc.com.